This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. All right, Jeremy, you are the founder of Right Tail Capital. Uh, found your letter uh, on the internet when I do all my quarterly letter recaps and saw your Ferguson pitch, and I really liked it. And I know the business from a qualitative, just personal level. Um, my family, my wife's, my wife's granddad runs a pretty large plumbing business out of Atlanta, and whenever I get to see him, I talk to him about business and somehow one way or another, it ends up talking about, you know, diving into the, the economics of it. So, you know, like, who do you buy from? What do your margins look like? And he always ends up discussing Ferguson and the name Ferguson, Ferguson, Ferguson comes up and who he buys from and, um, made me actually want to look into the business. And they were, I, I believe they were traded on the London stock exchange for a while. Um, didn't have necessarily like a U.S. main listing, and um, now they're now they're listed uh, in the in the U.S. on a on a on a big exchange. And found them on your letter, and thought the stars had crossed, and wanted to get a chance to get you on the podcast to discuss that. So um, before we dive into all of that, though, I do I do want to learn a little bit more about you. So walk us through the reasons you started Right Tail Capital, and 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 what your investment philosophy is in the first place. Sure. Well, Brandon, thank you so much uh, for having me on. It's great to uh, get to know you better and uh, share a little bit more about Rightail and Ferguson. Um, so starting Rightail has really been a long-term dream of mine. You know, gosh, if I think back about 15 years ago when I was writing my business school essays, I actually wrote one about starting my own investment firm one day. The vision was a little bit different back then. 
but it just kind of goes to show that over the last 15 years, um, I've had this long-term dream of potentially doing this one day. And, and really kind of the, the simple premise is, you know, let's go ahead and, and compound, you know, our family's savings and earnings that my wife and I have built up over time. And I want to be investing for multiple decades, you know, mm-hmm. for as long as I, as long as I can think straight. And I love this business and um, really take a long-term perspective and play to my strengths. And, you know, look, if friends and family and other investors, you know, want to come along, uh, that would be great too. Um, so that was kind of, that was kind of the, uh, the simple premise um, in terms of investment philosophy. Um, it's really own a concentrated portfolio of undervalued high quality businesses. And when I say concentrated, um, that's typically going to be 10 to 15 kind of core positions. Um, and when I think about quality, um, you know, I care a lot about uh, both reinvestment runway and also returns on incremental capital. And, and obviously the price we pay for that is incredibly important. So if I can, you know, to make it super simple, you know, if I can find a business that I think is an above average business and explain to you why both quantitatively and qualitatively in terms of thinking through a Porter's Five Forces framework or something of the like, um, but also kind of say, gosh, like I think this business is undervalued. Um, mm-hmm. God, that could just be a really great setup for a potential investment um, uh, for right tail. Um, so maybe I'll pause there and, and, uh, see what additional questions you have. Yeah. I mean, you think of the term high quality and, you know, you, you kind of outlined a couple descriptions of high quality and then a fair price. And normally whenever you get these types of, um, claims, you know, like, oh, I want to buy high quality businesses at good prices. Usually the good prices isn't necessarily what people would think are cheap, cheap, like, you know, let five to, you know, 10, five to seven times cash flows or something like that. Um, and I don't know if part of that's just because over the last 10 years, you can buy stuff at 20, 30 times earnings and do pretty well. So have you had any instances where, you know, whether it's the quality aspect or the price aspect, um, if 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 one of those factors kind of buckles, like which one will you not uh, have, you know, or were the like zero zero tolerance for 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 deviation, whether it's quality or price? And then how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah. So first of all, Brandon, you hit the nail on the head, man. Um, you know, it's funny when um, I, I've never really loved the labels of growth or value uh, because I agree with Buffett, you know, and I, I think he said it in one of his early 90s letters where it's like, you know, both growth and value are super important to how we determine what a business is worth. Um, mm-hmm. And so sometimes, you know, I've worked with a lot of folks who might be considered more traditional value and care a lot more about, you know, sort of current multiples. And there, there, I always feel like the person on the other end who's trying to understand business quality as well as valuation. Mm-hmm. And then other times when I'm talking to my friends who are super focused on growth, I feel like I'm kind of like the value guy that's always like, all right, well, what are the actual cash flows here? And what are, you know, what price are we actually paying? I get that it's a great company. Um, so I care about both. Um, to answer the other part of your question, you know, one of the most formative experiences for me um, was I worked at T. Rowe Price for about four years and it was a great place to work because 
there were so many different investment styles there. Mm-hmm. Um, but my first, my first assignment, and this was right after the financial crisis. So, um, you know, it was, it was hard to find a seat in the investment business and not a lot of people had left hero. So they asked me to cover small cap metals and mining. And, and you think about like the opposite side of the quality yeah. spectrum and businesses that, you know, are trying to build one project, but the cap X for that project might be bigger than the overall enterprise value of the business. Yep. And the longer I get removed from that experience and every day that goes by Brandon, I continue to be more thankful for it because, you know, I made, I obviously made a lot of mistakes, made a, you know, got a few fingers and, and toes chopped off along the way. But I, I think it really just kind of helped me see one, you know, here are the ways that a lot of those investment theses can kind of go wrong. Um, so that was formative. And then to, to your other point, I think it just kind of helped me realize too, that, you know, when push comes to shove, um, that's, you know, investing is a very personal thing. And I, I probably don't have the staying power with a lower quality business, um, uh, you know, when when things go wrong, or if I feel like management is starting to change its story, or whatever the case might be, I've kind of learned over time that I have a harder time sticking with those businesses. And again, investing is very personal. There are lots of different ways to make money, um, but I I find that you know if I feel like the business is kind of continuing to do what I would expect it to do and management has continued to be thoughtful and do a good job. I probably have, you know, um, an easier time personally and more play to my strengths by sticking with that higher quality business uh, through mm-hmm. a tougher time. Oswath Dumadoran was on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast. And at one point he said at, at any price, he's willing to buy an asset. And I don't know, uh, you know, with 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 quality, I guess the question is: Is that something you believe as well? Where if 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 an asset trades at a ridiculously cheap price, it doesn't matter if it's a you know quote unquote quality business or not. Like that's that's something that you would be interested, or is it, or is 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 that not the case? Yeah, you know, look, I'm always I'm always open minded because good investment opportunities can be found anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like to get, you know, one area where I, I have spent some time, uh, you know, it's like, look, if it's if it's the low cost producer and maybe it's not like the highest quality industry. So, for instance, mm-hmm. if it's the lowest cost steel producer and the business is trading at, you know, a discount to replacement cost and because it's a low cost company, you know, it's like, all right, like this business should be around for a while and assuming the balance sheet is fine, things like that. Something like that is is you know would be something I would take a hard look at, um, uh, but the bar is probably a little bit higher for me. You know, like maybe maybe that's a you know you know once in a you know every eight years type of opportunity or something that that comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, otherwise, look if I can find a, a, an above average business and pay a fair to below average price for it and let that business create value and compound over time. Um, that's what I'll, I'll likely end up doing more of. Do you have any big mistakes that you've made investing that have formulated your current philosophy? Um, anything, you know, like it doesn't even have to be that you lost a ton of money, but maybe you were just incredibly wrong on 
the future of the business and maybe manage to escape with not much of a capital loss, but still kind of change the way you think about investments and, 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 and frame ideas? Uh, yeah, sure. You know, uh, have, have certainly had a lot of learnings and, and have made, you know, several mistakes along the way. You know, one would be just that bucket of, of, uh, trying to understand metals and mining businesses, you know, the last, you know, 10 to 15 years ago and just kind of realizing, um, that the macro call was probably the most important, uh, piece of it and mm -hmm. kind of recognizing that that's probably not where my skill set or passion lies. Uh, so that would be one. Um, a second area, you know, Brandon, I think having worked, you know, with several folks who are more traditional value, I, I think over time, I probably ended up trying to find quality businesses at super cheap prices. And sometimes that was successful. Other times it kind of led me towards turnarounds, right? And, and maybe it was the number three player in the industry, but there yeah. was this great margin opportunity and a new management team or something like that. And some of those opportunities worked out well. Um, and, and other, you know, others, you know, I think ended up being, you know, at a minimum, just an opportunity cost, you know, and I kind of right. ended up realizing like, gosh, like this business has had five management teams in the last eight years. And, and, uh, you know, gosh, it really seems like it should, um, you know, operate better, but for one reason or another, and, you know, maybe it's culture, um, you know, I am a firm believer that oftentimes the really, really incredible companies, um, you know, it's not necessarily like one's an A and one's like a A minus or a B plus, yeah. but to, to get to be really incredible, they probably do lots of little things really, really well. Yeah. And that can become a really big advantage over time and become really hard to replicate. Um, and so it's probably investing, you know, investing in some of those turnarounds, some that went well, some that didn't go as well. Um, uh, that probably, you know, steered me a little bit more towards uh, the quality end. I wonder how much of that buying, let's say, the number three player in an industry because I this is the, this is something I suffer with too, is just you never think you'll get the like number three market share price for the number one market share business and so you settle on the quality of the business because you don't think you'll ever get that price and that's where like you know this year is is kind of an exception or kind of an example the s&p is down call it like 24 percent and maybe those number one players are starting to get to prices that you would see at like a number two or a number three where a year and a half two years ago you like couldn't dream of of of, of that scenario but that's where i guess a lot of that comes down to patience where it's like can you have patience to one identify that the number one player exists and that it's a superior business and then two more importantly can you can you have the discipline to not like sacrifice on price and have the patience to say if it ever gets here then i'll buy um and that's and that's hard to do because i've i've done the same thing where it's like oh like yeah this might not be the best player but it's kind of cheaper in the industry and and then you know maybe management just lights capital on fire so it doesn't matter if it's trading at four times cash flow because <laughs> cash flow just goes nowhere right right yeah you bring up incredible points you know and uh and and the price pieces is really really important you know so so it's like, all right, yeah, maybe this is the number one player, but it's trading at like 50 times earnings or something like that. And, 
you know, if I try to pencil it out, it's really hard to figure out how we get a good IRR from today's price. But sometimes you might have the number one player and the returns on capital are really good. And, you know, maybe it's trading around a market multiple, you know, plus or minus. And in those cases, I think a longer term perspective and letting the math play out of the high returns on incremental capital and the reinvestment runway can make what maybe seems like a bit of a premium price relative to its peers or something like that. I would say, you know, gosh, like it, it actually might be uh, cheap or undervalued, you know, um, mm -hmm. but, but that initial absolute price is, is certainly um, incredibly important and having that patience that you mentioned um, or that ability to kind of discern, you know, between, between the two uh, is, is super, super important for prospective returns. It's kind of a perfect segue into what we'll spend the rest of the time on, which is Ferguson and diving deep into the business. So let's let's just you know get our shovels and start right there. So how do you how, first? How did you find this idea, and then what initially attracted uh, attracted you to it? Um, and then you know just give us kind of the thirty thousand foot bull thesis on Ferguson. Sure, sure. One of the things that's interesting about my portfolio today is uh, I'd say about three quarters of the position are uh, positions are investments that I've had for multiple years. The other quarter or so, which Ferguson falls into, are businesses that I haven't owned in the past, but that I've studied kind of in one way, shape or form uh, for a long time. And so with Ferguson, it was somewhat serendipitous in that I would go to uh, kind of an industrial focused sell side conference every year, more focused on domestic companies. Um, Ferguson has, has always kind of been there, you know, even 10 years ago, when to your point, it was a, a UK listed company called Wolseley. So there were a few times over the years where, you know, I would sort of watch their presentation, uh, learn a little bit about the business. It, it, it seemed like, you know, from afar, they were always performing quite well. And that was something that, you know, just sort of, um, you know, I kind of recognized. Um, and then I became particularly intrigued over the last two years when the company was kind of getting towards the final phases of, of selling off their, their non-core businesses, which were mostly uh, European businesses focused on, on specific countries. And, and then, it, then it started to become clearer that the business might move its primary listing uh, to the US, which kind of made sense because as we'll talk about today, their U.S. kind of plumbing and HVAC distribution business has kind of always been its crown jewel mm -hmm. um, and where the lion's share of its profits were. Um, so I started spending more time on it maybe 18 months to two years ago. Um, I was intrigued by the quality. Uh, I kind of struggled with the valuation um, and I've just kind of kept it on my radar uh, since. Um, and then that kind of led us to a point today where um, the valuation has become a lot more attractive. I already had, you know, it was kind of in my library of companies that I had worked on and, and mm -hmm. studied in the past, um, which helped me get, you know, up to speed more quickly this time around. So is that what you do? And just going off on an, on an aside, from like an idea generation perspective, do you have just this watch list of high quality companies that you try to do the work on and then say, Hey, if it ever gets to this price, basically, let me just use the ammo I created two years, three years ago from studying this thing and just 
enables you to make quick decisions. Is that is that kind of more the idea framework there for getting names into the book? Yeah, an idea can really come from anywhere. Uh, but you're you're spot on that you know one of the things I love about this business is that we should you know become better investors over time, and and you know if if we're all able to kind of stay healthy, um, you know we can invest for just a long period of time. You know much different than being a professional athlete and having kind of a, a shorter shelf life. Mm-hmm. Um, so each each time I study a business, you know I I try to think through you know if it's uh, if it's an investment, you know, that I might be interested in making at a certain price and keep it on the watch list. Um, it doesn't have to happen that way. You know, I, I, I also study, you know, IPOs and spinoffs or screen for, you know, businesses that, that might have some attractive attributes. Um, right. but, cer- but certainly building out that library over time, um, can be really beneficial, you know, and one example of that, um, you know, it's just sort of, you know, early on during the COVID period, obviously, you know, there was a, a massive market sell-off and there were opportunities to buy companies that, you know, were very attractively positioned with awesome management teams and with great balance sheets. And all of a sudden the equity was down 40 or 50%. And, you know, as long as you could kind of get comfortable that the business was going to stay around and the balance sheet was in fine shape, um, and so two examples, you know, that, that led me at the time to invest in O'Reilly and Transdime, um, mm. which were both businesses I had studied in the past, um, you know, hadn't gotten comfortable uh, with the valuation and, and then those kind of opportunities arose. So, so yes, a hundred percent, that is, that is one, you know, uh, one scenario that can really present itself from time to time. Got it. And then going back to Ferguson, what they're, their history, did they start in the UK and then eventually create a US business? Or because like I've only known them as like this big US distributor for plumbing. And then when I saw, you know, Ferguson PLC, they were trading in London. I'm like, that's kind of weird. But did they did they start over in Europe and then make their way to the US? You know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I will get 100% of the story uh, correct. I believe they bought the U.S. assets in the early 80s, um, but have always been kind of kind of continuing to do acquisitions in the U.S. But you're right. It was kind of like just a broader uh, a broader company that perhaps, you know, lacked some focus. Um, and to really kind of coming out of the great financial crisis, you saw them make a lot of moves. You know, one was uh, they had a bigger lumber business uh, that really struggled in the financial crisis. And they kind of moved on from those assets. And then they really started to sell uh, some of their lower quality uh, European businesses. But but even if you look back, you know, 15 years ago, you still would have been able to say, you know, gosh, you know, the the lion's share of the profits are this kind of this strong U.S. Uh, plumbing and HVAC distribution business. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's wild. I'm trying to do a quick Wikipedia. And at one point it said by 1982, they doubled in size every five years. It's not bad. That's not bad. So, okay. So we look at them now. They sell, you know, plumbing, HVAC equipment. Walk us through the economics of the business and then walk us through kind of the value chain. So let's actually start with the value chain. So you're Ferguson, you sell to who, and then 
you get parts from whom. And so kind of walk us through that, you know, like, let's say I need a PVC pipe, something very sim like simple. Maybe this isn't even correct, but say I need a PVC pipe and I go to Ferguson, I'm a contractor and I buy it from Ferguson. How does that PVC pipe go into Ferguson and then out to me? Uh, sure, sure. So you hit the you hit the nail on the head, Brandon. So um, one of the things that I've found attractive about uh, you know certain value added distributors could be in different industries. You know, we'll end up having a lot of the same characteristics that Ferguson has, which is on the one hand you have a very fragmented supplier base, and then on the other side you have a very fragmented customer base. So on the supplier side, Ferguson works with over thirty thousand vendors um so pretty fragmented you know th the largest one is under five percent of ferguson sales so i would say um all right you know pretty pretty fragmented and then even more fragmented on the customer side where they have over a million customers right and a lot of times like you said it, it could be a contractor it could be a plumber um you know some sort of specialized uh technician and I think oftentimes their customers care about parts availability um, and, and you know, going along with that speed, you know, because they want to get their jobs done. They want to find yeah. the part they need, keep their end customers happy, you know, and I, that's probably always true. I would, I would say, you know, especially over the last few years, I would imagine it's been, you know, probably quite difficult to be a contractor because you have prices going up. You always have you know, end consumers who have high expectations to get their projects done quickly and on budget. Um, and so to have someone like Ferguson who can have a broader parts availability than kind of a smaller mom and pop or have more expertise um, and potentially more parts availability than a larger, you know, big box home improvement store, uh, that could be really valuable uh, mm -hmm. to the to the plumbing technician. Um, similarly, for their thirty thousand vendors, um, you know, they I'm sure they appreciate that Ferguson has boots on the ground and can reach this really broad base of customers without having to kind of do that uh, themselves. So that's a lot of you know that's a lot of the value that Ferguson provides. And if they you know if they do a good job, then um, they can earn, you know, some, some healthy returns on, on capital, uh, for their shareholders as well. And so let's say I am Ferguson and I sell $1 worth of pipe. How, how much profit do I keep in that, in that scenario? And then what are the reinvestment returns like for the business? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the gross margins on Ferguson's products average around uh, 30% or, or slightly higher. So of a dollar, they, you know, they keep 30 cents or so in terms of gross profits. Um, their operating profits across the business are, are kind of right around 10 cents of that dollar. Uh, so right. that's, that's what they end up keeping, um, which to me seems uh, pretty fair, you know, especially mm -hmm. For a business, um, you know, with this scale that has a lot of opportunity to continue to kind of grow market share over time, uh, their returns on capital, looking over kind of the last, you know, ten or fifteen years, have really been exceptional. And and one of the things that I find really interesting about Ferguson is, you know, if you go to um, 
you know, sort of your financial data provider and they have the historical financials for Wolseley, well, those financials probably include all these businesses that they've divested over the mm -hmm. last decade, right? So, you know, um, I, I've had, you know, friends say to me like, yeah, well, this, this doesn't really make sense. It looks like their revenues have barely grown over the last 10 years. But if you really peel back the onion, um, their, their U.S. Uh, and Canada business, the crown jewel, has averaged, um, you know, call it 8% top line growth over that time period, primarily from growing their volumes organically. Um, right. and, and then if you look at their incremental returns on capital, and again, some of this has been addition by subtraction because they've been removing the lower quality businesses. Uh, but those returns on incremental capital have been well north of, of 20% um, in some years, uh, even higher than that. So, um, so, that's, so that's something that I find super attractive here. And I'm sure we'll spend time on, on potential risks. Um, and that's something that I certainly think a lot about, right, is as they as they allocate incremental capital um, to what degree you know whether it's whether it's internally or through m a um, I want to make sure that they're continuing to keep a high bar for the incremental capital that they deploy mm -hmm. yeah, and we'll definitely get into the capital deployment, but I want to go to um kind of what each customer constituent cares about most because as as you mentioned, you can you know Ferguson sits in the middle, right? Let's, let's kind of use a football field. They're kind of at the 50 yard line. And on one side of the end zone, there's the manufacturers, the ones that make the product on the other end, there's the customers, the contractors, the individuals, the plumbers. What does each customer constituent care about most, right? Because on one hand, right, the manufacturer cares about distribution and getting the largest customer base. They probably care about, you know, uh, just the predictability of a man, like a value add manufacturer being able to buy large volumes over time and have that durability, have that pipeline. And then on the other hand, if you're a contractor, like you care about, you mentioned it earlier, you care about availability, speed, getting the right part at the right time, but then sometimes price. Um, so walk us through each of those and we can, we can kind of start with the contractors because I think most people, when they look at a business like this, they might say, oh, there might be cost pressures coming because if you have rising input costs, it's you know going to subtract from your margins that you end up passing on to the contractors. But walk us through how that like might not be the case for these for this business. Yeah. Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head. So there you know, I, I think there are really three things that the customer uh, probably wants from a Ferguson. Right. So it's the availability of the part. And, you know, with Ferguson being number two number one or number two in each of their market segments, they have that scale and, you know, breadth of, of parts inventory. So that's number one. Yep. Um, two, they really want to be able to get that part quickly, you know, and that's where, you know, Ferguson's, you know, branch network and excellent distribution um, is really helpful. Sometimes they'll deliver parts, uh, you know, on site to their customers, depending on the job or the size of the project and things like that. And then another part that I think is also really important that we haven't talked about is really that knowledge and service element, right? So maybe, you know, maybe the, maybe the technician doesn't know what part they actually need, or, or maybe they don't know a substitute part. And yeah. 
you know, Ferguson cares a lot about, you know, and I, I think most companies do, but it seems like Ferguson has really done a nice job of training and retaining a lot of their employees. So they've always had, um, you know, a big focus on hiring younger uh, professionals and, um, you know, sort of helping their careers develop over time. And the more they can kind of keep folks, well, it makes sense why they would have that additional knowledge to be able to yep. share with their customers. Um, and so I really think, uh, to your point, like um, price matters, but I really think that's more of a of a tertiary concern. You know, if 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 price is kind of in the ballpark of other competitors, and other competitors are all feeling the same kind of you know rising input cost pressures, um, well, then I think a lot of times that ends up you know getting pushed on to the end customer, right? And if it's especially if it's kind of a non-discretionary project, if it's more yep. of a, a repair type work and, you know, roughly half of Ferguson's business is kind of repair and remodel work. Well, that, you know, that probably ends up being a little more non-discretionary. And if, you know, if input costs are going up 5% or 10%, that's probably going to get passed on by the whole distribution chain, not just Ferguson. Um, and so I think, I think a lot of times that's the, the price is more of a tertiary, um, consideration than kind of a primary one. And who can these customers go to if it's not Ferguson? And it's kind of another way of saying like, who do, who, who does Ferguson compete against? And then, um, like what allows Ferguson to have kind of that right to win for the market share going forward? And we'll, we'll discuss market share in a little bit, but. Yeah, talk about competition. Yeah, so Ferguson breaks down nine market segments that and and for you know seventy five percent of their sales, they're they're number one or number two, and um and so they're kind of different competitors, uh you know in in some of those different segments, you know so for so in their HVAC segment, you know they might compete more with a Watsco uh, or someone like that. Um, in certain of their segments, they're going to compete more with like, you know, a bit with like a Home Depot or Lowe's. Um, when they're doing like facilities management, they might compete more with like a Home Depot supply. Yep. Um, and then and then across all of these nine segments, there it's still kind of a large, you know, kind of market share that is that is pretty fragmented among mom and pops. Mm-hmm. And and I think the mom and pops, the ones that are well run, probably excel in the customer service and the long term relationships. However, I kind of struggle to see how they could have the same parts availability since they have kind of, you know, smaller scale, smaller balance sheets um, uh, to work with. And so I think that's why you've seen Ferguson, you know, they always talk about how a lot of their end markets typically grow maybe a little faster than GDP. So, you know, most of the last 10 to 15 years, GDP has probably been growing two to 3%. Ferguson organically has kind of been growing closer to 8% just on volumes, right? And so um, maybe a bit of that is their markets are growing a little faster than GDP, but then um, it seems like they're outgrowing uh, their markets as well. So mm-hmm. long-winded way of saying, uh, Lots of different competitors, very fragmented markets, which I think gives them an opportunity to continue to take share over time. And I think you said in the letter, because uh, one of the things we'll get to eventually is is the valuation and kind of normalized profits. But one thing you said is 
if we do enter a, a downturn, a recession, that might help Ferguson and their ability to acquire these mom and pop assets or these smaller competitors at very good prices, at 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 distressed prices. Um, which which is something that you know again, you buy at distressed prices, your returns on invested capital in years you know three, four, five are way higher than what than what you've paid over the last three to five years. Yeah, one hundred percent. You know, that's and that's that's one of the ways. Um, that's one of the things I think about. You know, uh, a lot when when I'm considering investing in a quality company is like, absolutely, I want today's price to be, uh, you know, to be super attractive, and and maybe no business, you know, necessarily wants to go through a tough period, Brandon. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times, you know, the best players will, you know perform the best during during tougher times and that's when there can be more market share up for grabs you're right you know the acquisition multiples uh you know could could easily go down um and also if we if we continue to be in an environment where you know maybe capital becomes more scarce uh for all types of buyers um you know that should that that could potentially set up some great opportunities for ferguson to buy businesses at at more attractive prices and generate uh, higher returns going forward. And so if we look going forward, let's start with margin evolution. So you said Ferguson, they do about 30% gross margins and they've actually increased those over the last decade by like roughly 3%. So, you know, going from 27 to 30 over the last decade. And during that same time, they've expanded EBIT margins from 4% to 10%. So how do you think about that margin evolution over the next, say, three, five, 10 years? And is this an instance where the current margins are something closer to peak margins and the run rate margins are much lower? Maybe not much lower, but let's say, you know, 25 and five to seven for EBIT. Um, and then if if not, why not? Sure, sure. It's a great it's a great question. Um, yeah. So, you know, when I think about a business like this, and its ability to potentially earn higher margins over time. Um, it makes sense in Ferguson's case for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we've already talked about uh, their scale, which should give them, you know, better buying power relative to other smaller players and, and more buying power over time. So that's number one. Um, Ferguson has also kind of slowly increased uh, their private label uh share that they sell as well um which which comes with higher margins uh so that's another way they can slowly creep up their gross margins um and so i would expect over time and as i've studied um either distributors or or other you know kind of similar businesses across other industries um you know i I think the really the really strong operators who have competitive advantages kind of figure out ways to kind of grow their margins or improve their returns over time. And Mm -hmm. again, in Ferguson's case, having scale, um, increasing their private label penetration while being mindful of not upsetting their their vendors either and doing too much private label too fast. um, You know, it makes sense to me why their margins uh, should increase over time. And then and then similarly, just thinking through the operating margin side, they should be able to get some leverage from their SGNA as well over time. Um, so it makes sense to me why their margins have improved and why they should continue to improve. 
Um, you bring up a good point that, you know, in the most in the most recent year, they've had kind of north of 10 percent operating margins. They're guiding this next year to be kind of more mid nines. Um, but they were, you know, they were doing, you know, kind of low nines even a few years ago before the pandemic. So even if even if the pandemic, um, you know, has either brought forward a bit of growth or, you know, helped create a better environment. You know, my sense is that the the margin, you know, pullback should be pretty minor uh, in the yeah. near term um, and kind of provide a nice base to grow from uh, over the long term. And then to your earlier point, uh, we're also paying a really attractive price uh, for that today, which I think, you know, gives us gives us more of a margin of safety there. Yeah. And then if we go all the way up to the top in revenue. Walk us through the revenue kind of growth algorithm there. So you mentioned it earlier. You get, call it eight to, we'll just call it high single digits organic volume growth from their business. And then, you know, let's let's assume they do eight to 9% revenue growth over the next three to five years. Most of that's organic. Where Where does this business or how can this business grow, let's say, double digits? over over long periods of time over a decade is it a mix of you know volume and maybe maybe price increases is it more acquisitions how do we how do we get to double digit growth because this thing to me this thing really becomes exciting if you can get double digit growth for a decade at 10% profits today with you know 8 to 10% ebit margins over the course of its life yeah i look i think you i think you framed it well i would uh you know, I, I would highlight a few nuances, um, which is, you know, they they talk a lot about, you know, their their ability to grow faster than their end markets, a couple hundred basis points faster than their end markets. And they would say their end markets, you know, typically grow a little bit faster than GDP does. Um, and so, yes, over the last decade, that has worked out to be kind of high single digits uh, volume growth. With a little bit of price on top, you know, maybe maybe one percent in most years, and one to two percent uh, from acquisitions as well. So that you know, looking backwards, you know, that's how we've kind of gotten to, you know, maybe total top line and kind of like the nine-ish percent type range, uh, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, you know, but certainly the macro environment is is important here, right? So I'm more concerned with let's have this business continue to outperform its end markets and outperform its peers. And that will lead to good things over time. If the scenario that you laid out happens, which is, you know, hey, the next few years, we continue to get high single digit revenue growth, then maybe we get a bit of margin expansion on top of that. So maybe we have, you know, EBIT growth, you know, high single digits, low double digits, and then with some share purchases and some some thoughtful capital allocation. Um, the business also pays a bit of a dividend. Maybe our total total returns end up being, you know, kind of low to mid teens, just in terms of the value that's being created. Um, and you know, oh by the way, maybe we get some multiple expansion as well that could really could really improve our returns. Got it. No, that makes sense. I mean, I, that's kind of the way I was thinking about it. And then, just one of the last questions about about the core ideas. How much do you worry about the housing slash recession risk uh, with buying today? And you know, 
obviously this is hindsight bias because we're assuming that something happens in the future that it might not, but let's assume that in the next 18 to 24 months, the U.S. enters a recession, housing prices collapse, construction slows. Would you, like, what? what is one reason why, like, let's say you have 50% plus conviction that that scenario will play out. Is there a reason that you would still want to buy today versus, let's say, in 12 to 18 months when, like, maybe Ferguson's trading very cheaply because, you know, it's, 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 it's end markets are in recession and... Um, you know, it might be under earning at that point. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question, Brandon. Um, it, it's a, it's a fabulous question. Uh, you know, one of the ways I think about it is just, you know, if we get, you know, sort of a more moderate recession, um, or maybe something, you know, that, you know, maybe, maybe we get a housing uh, impact, and everyone thinks about, you know, kind of 07, 08, 09, and how severe that was. Um, mm -hmm. But maybe, you know, maybe we get something that's like, half of that or you know less than half of that and you know it certainly wouldn't surprise me if ferguson's earnings declined in that scenario and maybe they go from you know kind of the nine to ten dollar range down to seven dollars or something like that mm -hmm. and you know and there i would say well if if that happens then i think we you know we're still paying kind of around a market multiple uh for those kind of depressed earnings yeah. And, and so to me, there's a fair amount of, of concern priced into the stock uh, today. Um, certainly the macro environment will, will matter quite a bit. And, you know, there's a broad range of, of outcomes that could happen here. Um, so I, I think a lot about, you know, kind of the price that we're paying today, um, you know, on the one hand. And then I also look at and kind of say, look, there is a fair amount of of diversity in the business model. It's about 50% new construction, 50% repair remodel, 50% residential, 50% non-residential. Um, and so, you know, we could we could have an environment where, you know, one of those one of those areas is is weaker and the other ones hold up uh, pretty well. You know, I think there are a lot of uh, potential outcomes here, but just thinking through the price that we're paying and, you know, what some likely scenarios are for the actual underlying earnings of the business is one thing that kind of gives me confidence in owning the, owning the business today. Mm -hmm. And if we were to kind of red team this idea and create scenarios of which, you know, would, would probably um, invalidate the thesis, what has you most concerned about this investment? Yeah, so we've touched on the macro some. So I'd say one is definitely the macro, um, and then secondly is is kind of thinking through the incremental returns on capital. So, you know, one scenario that I could see being uh, being frustrating would be if, let's say, uh, to your point, we enter a recession like two years from now, and in the meantime, management uh, does a lot of you know does a lot of acquisitions at higher prices. Yep. And not only are the prospective returns lower due to the higher prices, but then, you know, the 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 fundamentals or the economy kind of kind of enters a weaker point in time. So, yeah. so separately, I would say, you know, macro and, and capital allocation. Um, uh, but I could certainly see, you know, that kind of happening, you know, almost at the same time and, and uh, potentially being one scenario uh, that could that could hurt a little bit more now 
like we've said, the the returns on capital have been really strong. I think management has been pretty mindful of their capital allocation uh, in the past, and they're typically buying uh, smaller businesses that, you know, when you add them all up, end up kind of moving the needle over time, yep. but don't necessarily contain a lot of risk on a deal by deal basis, right? So that's something that gives me some comfort and I think helps mitigate that risk, but certainly a big acquisition or something that's further afield, like if if they were to, you know, go ahead and enter something that was more commodity exposed or like kind of re-enter the lumber business in a bigger way and pay a high yeah. multiple, you know, I could certainly dream up scenarios that, you know, while I think they're unlikely, um, you know, those are some things that would give me give me pause and make me rethink the thesis. Got it. And then, you know, just kind of said said a little bit differently. If if we just look out three to five years from now, um, and 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 Ferguson flops, would you think the reason, if you had to guess, the reason would be external circumstances or internal failures? You know, I would think more likely than not, it would be external. You know, and I and and. I think we're likely talking about a scenario. So if, if the macro is is weaker than we expect, um, then then I think we're looking at you know potentially a lower IRR or delayed returns. Um, yeah. But otherwise, I think the fundamentals of their business or the ability for them to continue to slowly take share over time and add value to all constituents in the supply chain uh seems pretty solid and you know should benefit them uh for a long time to come mm. yeah no i mean i i agree and it's 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 one thing that i'm it's, it's it's a name i'm trying to dig into more so for 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 me it's just that top line growth if i can if i can if i can create a scenario where they're earning double digits or growing double digits in 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 revenue for a good amount of time, then this thing becomes very, very interesting. So um, just need to do a little bit more digging. But this th this has been a great podcast and kind of helping me get to that point. And uh, I know others are going to you know, definitely be thankful for the idea and kind of going from first to second base for all of us. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the other two things I'd add, Brandon, um, you know, are, uh, are one, you know, there, there's, a, there's a potentially interesting opportunity here that's not part of the core thesis but as a result of the business moving their primary listing to the u.s potentially the stock has been sold by some european indexes and while the company is you know north of 20 billion market cap it would take some time for ferguson uh to potentially get added to the s p 500 even though from a size standpoint it seems like it would fit quite well yeah um so that is, you know, that is one opportunity that over the next 12 to 18 months, uh, you know, could play out for the stock and could be a catalyst. Not the primary reason why I own Ferguson, but yeah. something I'm, I, I have on my radar. And then, and then secondly is just, you know, I'm always a little wary of, of uh, you know, arguments around relative valuations and, you know, having studied industrials for a long time, um, there's, there's always talk of like, oh, okay, here's this new industrial distribution business that has the potential to be the next Cool Corp or the next Watsco or the next right. Rathenol. 
And usually, you know, you or I could spend five minutes studying the business and either they have a ton of customer concentration or, you know, some, some part of that analogy doesn't work. And it's pretty easy to see why. Um, but to me, the, the economics of the Ferguson business look a lot more like some of these higher quality distributors and Ferguson trades at a much lower valuation than those. So I, those are two other, those are two other, um, you know, just situations that I'm mindful of, of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, how Ferguson could be, you know, a really awesome stock over the next uh, couple of years that I wanted to highlight. Yeah. And it, well, it's basically just asking like, will at some point the market recognize the barriers to scale in Ferguson's business? And, and, and if they do, then maybe they trade at like a pool or a Watsco where you're looking at at least the run rate market multiple, right? At least 15 to 18 times earnings or profits, um, maybe a couple turns premium just for the quality of the business and its place in its market. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, I think there's the potential for tremendous barriers to scale here. Um, because if you go back, right, if you go back to, if you're a contractor, if you're a plumbing company and you need parts and you have jobs all over the coast, or, you know, let's say you're you know, working in multiple States, you want to work with the distributor that has the largest reach that has the most availability, the widest assortment of products at fair prices. And if you're trying to start in that space, it's hard. It's like that chicken and the egg. It's hard to get there because you need customers to trust you. But in order for customers to trust you, you need to be there, which is tough. And Ferguson's cracked that. So um, this is this has been awesome. Uh, and just a few closing questions. So what other sure. ideas are you looking at currently? And if there's anything else that's got you excited, something like a Ferguson-type quality business at a decent price? Yeah, uh, you know, a business that I uh, actually spent some time discussing in my most recent investor letter, uh, which I think has a lot of, you know, positive quality characteristics like a Ferguson, although I would say, um, you know, has less economic cyclicality, but also, you know, you know, maybe not as attractive of a headline valuation is Constellation Software, um, which, which, a business, which is a business that has just allocated capital phenomenally well over a long period of time. Yep. Uh, and a business where, you know, their gross customer retention you know, it's typically north of 95% in any one given year because they're selling pieces of software that are absolutely critical yep. uh, to their customers. And so that's one where I would encourage people to spend some time, especially if you're really, really worried about the economy. Well, one, their business should hold up well. And like we talked about with Ferguson, their ability to find acquisitions, potentially pay less for them in a tougher yep. economic environment. Uh, would be attractive uh, as well. So that's that's one that I would just kind of uh, mention that I've spoken about recently. And then where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're, you've got a website, you're on Twitter. Um, I hope this kind of gets you more Twitter followers because I feel like you're a little bit underfollowed, but uh, where can people go to reach out? Well, again, thank you so much, Brandon. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, my website is just www.righttailcapital.com. Uh, folks can email me, uh, Jeremy at righttailcapital.com. Uh, uh, and like you mentioned, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and, and always looking to, uh, always looking to get to know other, uh, you know, smart, insightful investors like yourself. I'm shocked that Righttail Capital was still available. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, it was, uh, you know, I'm a little surprised as well. And, and, you know, it really was the one name that, you know, as I was just sort of brainstorming on names, you know, to think yep. about first and foremost, I want the returns to be exceptional and to be yep. on the right tail. I'm typically going to be investing in higher quality companies. Yep. And, and then also just from a personal standpoint, you know, I love, I love, you know, the process of how do we all get in, get better and, and improve our own outcomes together, whether that's investing, whether that's health and fitness. Yep. I just love that. And then, you know, on the personal side, I, I was someone who, who didn't grow up with much and kind of felt the financial strains of our family. So the mm. opportunity to work with individuals or institutions and, and help them, you know, not only protect their capital, but also grow it over time and improve their financial outcomes is one that I take really, really seriously. And so that was the one name where I was like, wow, this just really fits, you know, um, what I'm about and, yeah. and my long-term goals. And, you know, let's, let's do this together and let's, let's have a lot of fun along the way. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great name, which is why I was <laughs> surprised. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a good one. So, and it's different than all the other geographically name, like, you know, insert mountain with color and then capital.com. Um, awesome. And then last question I have for you, Jeremy, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Sure. Um, you know, look, I, it's it's probably a common answer, uh, but to me, it just feels you know like the most uh, the most true to me is you know would be Warren Buffett would be number one. I think that would be phenomenal. Obviously, someone that's been investing you know for eighty plus years, and and to get to sit down with him and to learn even more. Um, a second one that would be really interesting uh, would be Nick Sleep, where I've loved reading uh, all of his letters. I think he's a phenomenal investor, uh, has been, you know, probably a little more under the radar uh, than yeah. Warren Buffett has. Uh, so he would be one uh, that would be amazing. And then, you know, if I had to throw out, you know, sort of someone that's not alive today, you know, maybe, maybe someone like a Benjamin Franklin, who I just think, you know, had so many uh, different interests and, you know, was just a great lifelong learner and contributor. And, you know, that that way that he approached learning and life, um, you know, is just is something I try to live up to as well. So, uh, yeah, for one, those those, those are three uh, that that kind of jump out to me. Awesome. Well, Jeremy, this has been a great conversation. Best of luck rest of the year with Right Tail Capital. And Hope you guys kill it for decades to come. And, you know, if th we'll do this again at some other point if you've got another awesome business uh, to discover. So thanks so much. Thank you so much, Brandon. Really appreciate it, man. And uh, thanks for all you do. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.